John 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what they would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What are you looking for? And then, to whom are you looking to get it? We all need daily bread. We also have spiritual needs that present an even greater concern. And while everyone knows the former is true, not everyone acknowledges the latter. This is true even for those who follow Jesus. For some today, following Jesus is as simple as coming to church, even if just from time to time. I knew a realtor in Charlotte who told me one time that he came to church to build relationships, potential client relationships. Now that's a daily bread need. Some people go to church for help and support and breaking strongholds in their lives, addictions. That's another daily bread need. We all have them. But if the Gospel of John has taught us anything so far, it's the error of prioritizing the physical self at the expense of the spiritual. Jesus does amazing things in the physical realm to provide for people's physical needs. But when he does this during his earthly ministry, it always seems designed to make a point about or to point the recipient back toward what's happening in the spiritual realm. Following Jesus cannot be merely tangential to our lives. He's to be followed purposefully in faith and recognition that he is the one who supplies all our needs, spiritual and physical. In this morning's text, John continues the pattern of recounting events and encounters that demonstrate both Jesus' absolute control over the physical world and his lavish compassion for the needs of people. The event in our text this morning begins the chapter that is the theological center of John's gospel. John 6 is where it all comes out clearly and where it all comes together. 
who Jesus is, how he fulfills the Old Testament promises, what is God's plan for salvation, where is this ministry headed. And this critical chapter of the gospel begins with this miracle of miraculous provision. This is the one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, Jesus departs from Jerusalem after the series of confrontations we just read about, and he takes what is a pretty lengthy journey that included crossing the Sea of Galilee, which the Romans now have named Tiberius. And John gives us the sequence of events, but not the duration. So we don't know exactly how much time passed between what happened in chapter 5 and Jesus' arrival in the area of Bethsaida Julius, where this miracle takes place. And as Jesus goes, as he makes that journey, he continues preaching. And he continues performing signs and wonders. And therefore, wherever he goes, the crowd follows They are followers of Jesus, quite literally. But what are they looking for? Verse 2 says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. No dependence on him for daily bread. No acknowledgement of spiritual needs. They're looking to Jesus, yes. But they're just looking for a show. Jesus comes to the hill country. That's the way this word mountain was used sometimes. And he sits down with his disciples In verse 5, he looks up and he sees the crowd coming, the crowd following him. It brings to mind that moment in Samaria, doesn't it? In chapter 4, when Jesus told the disciples to look up and see the crowd coming as the fields were white for harvest. In that event, it was the timing to the minute that caught our attention. Jesus calls them to look up just as the crowd comes out. And here, the timing matters as well, but not so much the minute as the day or the week. But again, it's anything but accidental. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John records three Passovers in this gospel. The first we've already read. It's when Jesus was back at the temple, identifying himself as the true temple that, when destroyed, would be raised up in three days. The third Passover in John is the weekend of Jesus' death. This is the second one. Jesus knew the real meaning of the Passover, the meaning behind every Passover that had ever been. And soon after this miracle, Jesus will explain that he is the bread of life and that it's his flesh that must be eaten if any are to be spared from death. Palestinian Jews and the crowd following him see things very differently. For them, Passover is a day of nationalistic celebration. Remember that the 10th plague of Egypt, the first Passover, was the impetus for Pharaoh to finally release God's people from bondage. So to them, the Passover is like July 4th on steroids. It's the day where we celebrate our national freedom when liberation is passionately remembered. And because they're currently under the yoke of Roman oppression, which John reminds us with the Roman name of the sea, it's a day that stirred up strong emotions about a future liberation, freedom that they're still waiting for. Jesus knows the hearts of these people. He knows what they're after. That's why in verse 15, he'll withdraw from them. 
He knows that they're just following him because of the miracles. And because he knows every single one that his father has given into his kingdom, he can look across this crowd and know exactly how many of these followers will ultimately fall away. But he knows something else. These people, the mess that they are, they have need for daily bread. Verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It's like what he did for the invalid man who just had the grumbling bad attitude. Such ingratitude from that man and yet Jesus heals him. And here Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He doesn't calculate whether or not they're taking advantage of him. He doesn't wait for them to get their act together before he offers his help. He just helps. He sees a need and he helps. Well, actually, before he helps, he turns to Philip to see how Philip evaluates the situation. This checks two things in Philip's heart and by proxy the rest of the disciples and even ours. One New Testament professor says it well. He says, the Lord wished to give Philip an opportunity to reveal, one, whether he was moved with sympathy for the people, and two, whether he had taken to heart the lesson that Jesus' signs were intended to teach, his ability and willingness to supply every need. Those really are the essentials for every ministry situation. First, sympathy for others. People have all kinds of needs, and all people have needs, spiritual and physical. They have hurts and brokenness related to those needs. And no, Jesus doesn't command us to help indefinitely to the point where helping hurts people. Here, he doesn't provide these people with daily bread for the rest of their lives, whether they work or not, but he starts with sympathy. And so should we. And second, every ministry situation requires awareness of our complete dependence on God. We receive our daily bread in whatever form it takes from the one who created it, from the one who owns every animal of the forest and the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus can solve this problem. He will solve this problem. Our God can supply all our needs. But first, he asks Philip how he would do it. And Philip's answer shows that he's not thinking much more clearly than the crowds. And it's something we've seen again and again in John. Remember, Jesus' mother, Mary, she just wanted not to be embarrassed. Nicodemus couldn't fathom being born a second time. The woman at the well saw only the impossibility of having enough water. The invalid man had no one to lift him into the pool. And feeding all these people? That would simply be too expensive. 200 denarii, eight months' wages for hard work, wouldn't even put a dent in their appetites. Little sympathy plus little faith? equals timid calculations. The disciples don't have food stores from which to feed the people, so they go looking around. And Andrew finds a young man in the crowd with five barley loaves and two fish. His own lunch. 
Everything about this description is intended to communicate how little is here. That it is a laughable ration for all of these people. And these loaves are more like flat pancakes made from barley. This is poor people food. The fish, most likely, was pickled and in a kind of chutney form so it would keep. You used it as a, as a side dish or a spread meant to add just a little more substance to a meal that was mostly barley cakes. For one person, it could potentially be filling, but unglamorous. For this crowd, as another pastor puts it, it was ludicrously inadequate to the need. But Jesus has the people to sit down. And here in verse 10, we realize the actual size of this crowd. 5,000 men. Now that number doesn't include the women and children that were no doubt also present. Some estimates exceed 20,000 people total. You look out on the grassy hills and just see thousands upon thousands of people who are going to be fed from five barley cakes and two portions of fish. How Jesus performs the miracle itself, John doesn't say, because the mechanics, with one exception, are not his concern. That exception is how the miracle begins. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them. The miracle begins with Jesus' heart of confident gratitude, in the goodness of his father. He knows confidently that this is the kind of work his father does and that Jesus is to be doing. He knows that physical needs matter too, that it's right to give these people their daily bread. He knows that he has the authority and dominion over all of nature and that feeding these people from these meager rations is no trouble for Jesus. Everything about it is right and Jesus trusts his father so much to do it that he thanks him even before, to our eyes, anything has happened. Also of note here is that Jesus does not technically create additional food. I wouldn't make too much of this, but it's, it does strike me that his mission on earth is one of recreation, of transformation. When he made wine, he started with water. He didn't make it out of nothing. He transformed it. He recreated it from water into wine. And this meal, he recreates from meager loaves and fishes. He said to Nicodemus that to inherit the kingdom, we need to be born again, transformed and recreated by Christ into his likeness. The work of Christ on earth is one of, of transformation. Once Jesus begins distributing the food, all the language changes in this passage from inadequacy to abundance. It says, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. In verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, trust in God's provision and goodness with gratitude in our hearts precedes the abundant life. If you do not have trust in God's provision and goodness, you will always have too little in everything. But trust in his provision and goodness with gratitude in our hearts precedes abundance. Abundance is reemphasized by Jesus' next command. He told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments 
that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets left over by those who had eaten. Kids, there's an important lesson here about how God thinks about abundance. My dad used to try to teach me this lesson, and I didn't want to listen. Even when there's plenty, it all matters. We tend to think that something is important only if it's scarce, and that if we have a lot of something, we don't have to be careful with what we have or thankful for what we have. But that's not what Jesus demonstrates here. As another pastor preached, infinite resources are no excuse for waste. Wastefulness is sinfulness. Now think about it. Jesus has an access, has access to an infinite supply of bread. He can make and recreate as much daily bread as he or anyone else needs. But think about how he acts. First, he's grateful for it. Just because it comes what seems easily doesn't make him ungrateful. He doesn't just take it for granted that there's a meal every night. He gives thanks to his father for everything he has. And he also doesn't let even the abundance go to waste. He calls them to gather up the extra in baskets. This food could be a meal for tomorrow or it could be shared with the poor or used in some other way. But what it won't be is wasted. Gratitude does not take abundance for granted. The crowds gathered the significance of this sign. But that doesn't mean they reacted rightly to it. Remember, they were following Jesus for reasons other than faith. And remember also that it was Passover. They've got national Israel on their minds. And so when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's in Deuteronomy 18, through Moses, that God promises his people a future prophet like Moses who will come to them for their good. The people in the crowd know Deuteronomy 18. They're looking for a prophet that is to come. The people in the crowd also know the story of Elisha and how he fed a hundred men from a mere 20 loaves of barley. And what Jesus did here is greater even than what Elisha did. And so they knew, therefore, that this had to be the one who was to come. This is the one they're waiting for. And if Moses was able to deliver Israel from the oppression of Egypt, then surely this new, greater Moses can deliver Israel from the oppression of the Romans. This is going to be great. That's what they're looking for. Freedom from Roman oppression. They see Rome as the biggest source of oppression in their lives. And now they're looking at Jesus to provide freedom for them. I chuckled to read one pastor's comment. John does not argue that the people are wrong in this judgment, but only in their estimate of its significance. Freedom is what God has in store. God knows our need for daily bread, and he provides it. 
But more significant is the need from which we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted. The oppression and bondage of a human soul through slavery to sin. They're ready to make Jesus the king of Israel. They will kidnap him and take him by force if that's what they have to do. But at no point do they consider to make this king of righteousness the king of their own hearts. They want to throw open the gates of the city and march in the king in triumph. But at no point do they want to throw open the doors of their lives for the king of glory to come exercise his lordship there. Many people search for the wrong things in life, and it leads them to look in the wrong places. But it's also possible to look in the right place to Jesus and yet still be looking for the wrong things. Daily bread is important but not as important as the soul. Freedom from government oppression is a transformative blessing in a person's life, but it is not as important as freedom from sin. What are you looking for? And to whom are you looking to get it? Jesus can see how this all plays out with the crowd, so he departs from them. There's interesting parallels here between what the crowd wants of him And what Satan offered Jesus during his temptations. Both offer him significant earthly power. And in both cases, he has to decline to be the king over the kind of kingdom that has value in the eyes of the world. And instead to be the king over a spiritual kingdom that his father has given to him. The crowd can't get over their own presuppositions, their own desires, their own interests. They can't get past themselves. And so their conclusion about Jesus is all wrapped up in that. What do you see as your biggest problem in life? The answer will determine what you look for in Jesus. What is ultimately most important to you? The answer will determine what you look for in Jesus. How valuable do you think The spiritual freedom Jesus offers is. Well, the answer to that will determine how long you stick with Jesus when he starts to show you what he's really about. The crowd is focused on national pride and political liberation from tyranny. And in their eyes, all they've gotten from Jesus is some daily bread. They'll follow him to political freedom, but the moment he reveals the kind of Messiah he actually is, what he's really offering to them, and the hard cost of obtaining it, they'll move along to whatever's next. This chapter of John ends with the profound explanation of that contrast. We'll get to it in a few weeks, but look at the very end of chapter 6. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He provides daily bread, yes, and he values the body but never more than the soul, because only together do they make the whole person. It does no good to have a healthy, well-fed, 
materially satisfied body with a sin-polluted and diseased soul that is alienated from God. If we approach Jesus looking for anything else, we'll walk away unsatisfied. Jesus came to make his people whole. What's your approach to following Jesus? Many are like the crowds. They want what they want. We all feel that temptation. They wanted a show, entertainment, social status, a group to be with the in crowd. And if they get their daily bread along the way, that's quite a bonus. We, trusting in God's provision and abounding in sympathy for others, should look for ways that God will use us to provide daily bread. Daily bread matters. But we can never ourselves be satisfied with only God's material provisions. We receive them with gratitude. We never take them for granted. We do not waste them. But we don't follow Jesus just to be satisfied by bread. Christian, you long for satisfaction of the soul, union with Christ, and so reconciliation with God. For hope in God's goodness, whether daily bread is abundant or the circumstances of life lead us to doubt that goodness. For obedience, the power and the desire to honor Christ as Lord, even in our own lives. What are you looking for? If it's healing, wholeness, these things, you will find satisfaction in him. And only in him. When the what we're looking for and the who we're looking to become one and the same, abiding becomes abundance.